Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. From God our Father, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. If the Gospel of Luke is the Gospel written for women and children and the ill, and Matthew is the Gospel for Jews who are sitting on the fence about the question of Jesus, and John is the Gospel that explores Jesus' full divinity, then Mark, to which we direct our attention this year, is the Gospel in a hurry. Mark's favorite word in Greek is oithos, which means immediately. Immediately, used nine times in the first chapter of Mark alone, 36 times overall in the gospel. It is hard to read it without constantly running into the word and then immediately these people did this and immediately the disciples got up and immediately Jesus healed the sick and preached the word. So where does Mark, the gospel in a hurry, start? He doesn't start with angels and a birth announcement. He doesn't start with a long genealogy of who is descended from who. And he doesn't start with a high-flying prologue about the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. He simply writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. And immediately we find ourselves on the shores of the Jordan River with this man dressed in camel's hair and wearing a leather belt and eating locusts and wild honey who is calling all of the people of Judea to repent of their sins and be baptized. It's not that the other Gospels don't have John somewhere in their opening chapters. Every one of them does. John the Baptist is central to the message that Jesus will proclaim. But for Mark, John is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is the beginning because he is announcing the end of the old covenant and the coming of the new. You see, the old covenant, the covenant that was made through Moses, and really the entirety of the Old Testament going back even before Moses, through Genesis, through Abraham, through Noah and his family, to Adam and Eve even, is all about the coming one. That God himself is going to enter the world and fix the things that we broke. Right away in Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter of Scripture, God already makes a promise that a descendant of Eve will crush the head of the very serpent that deceived them into disobeying God's command. In Numbers chapter 24, there is an odd prophecy given by a Gentile. God is even working among the non-Jews. And this Gentile prophet, looking out over the people of Israel, says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. The promise, of course, is fulfilled when the Magi coming from Iran, coming from Persia, see the rising of the star, the king of the Jews. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, as Moses is closing out his words to the people of Israel, not perhaps realizing that this is his last great sermon, he says, I know that you no longer want God to come as this terrifying figure on top of the mountain. And so the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. 
the beginning of the gospel is already there in the books of Moses. It's there in the promise given to David that we talked about on our Wednesday services, our midweek services, where David thinks to build God a permanent house. And God says, no, I I travel in a tent so I can be with my people. It is I that will make you, David, a house. Not a brick, not of cedar, but to give you a descendant who will rule forever over my people and keep them safe. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as they watch Israel being taken into captivity, into Babylon in the 500s, both said that God is going to do something new. It is what he has been saying all along. In Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord prophesies through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. It hadn't happened yet. It was yet to come. And it begins with John the Baptist by the side of the Jordan River, the beginning of the good news of the coming one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jeremiah chapter 31, we know these words. We hear them almost every Reformation service. Echoes what the Lord said through Ezekiel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new testament, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Adam and Eve chose to make Satan their God. But God is not satisfied with this state of affairs. He wants, he desires, he is committed to becoming our God again, even those of us who are still his enemies. And it is no good simply to tell people what to do. It is no good to tell people to love the Lord their God with all their heart and mind, or to tell the people to love their neighbor. We can yell those words till the cow comes home and have no effect whatsoever. God says, no, I have to change people from the inside. I have to write my law within them so that no longer will they have to tell one another, love the Lord. They will all know that I am I am the Lord who created them, who redeemed them, and preserves them. And now today, we hear from the prophet Isaiah, the fifth gospel. It is fitting that in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very first thing we hear about is from Isaiah, who is the gospel, the good news of the Old Testament. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It is a text that every civil engineer loves to read. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How does one prepare for the arrival of such a coming one? 
one that has been awaited for so long, prophesied by so many. John's message is simple. Repent and be baptized. Repent, change your mind, recognize that the way you think is simply wrong and has always been wrong, and be baptized into the forgiveness of sins, into a God who takes away your guilt. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, through the centuries, and this is still true today, Christianity is often torn between what we might call left and right, especially when it comes to what we do in the world. You've got one group of people that say, well, I believe the Bible. And if we go to the Bible, we read, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And thus we get Christians who are absolutely laser-like committed to fixing the sexual misconduct of the world because they believe the Bible. You also have another group of Christians that say the same thing. I believe the Bible. And they say, he has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Christians should be laser-like focused on bringing about justice and kindness and mercy in the world because the Bible says so. Both are correct. Both rightly identify the law of the Lord to abuse sexuality and to forsake mercy and justice and kindness are both symptoms of the brokenness of humanity. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about both of them being works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, drunkenness, and orgies. But he also talks about enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. The reality is, sin is big. One of my favorite commentators, when somebody would share some bit of bad news with him, would always or often afterwards say, it's actually worse than that. That's what John the Baptist was called to do. He was called to stand by the river. And for all the people that had so narrowly defined sin as, well, it's just this, or it's, it's just this, John the Baptist comes and says, it's actually worse than that. In Mark's gospel, in the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there is no list of sins from which Israel is specifically asked to repent. Do you notice that? It's not that John the Baptist says, you must repent of not being sufficiently opposed to the Romans. You must repent of the fact that you divorce too easily. You must repent of the fact that you sneak around stealing stuff from your neighbor. You must repent of the fact that you gossip all the time. None of that is listed. All it says is repent. Reminds me of the story of President Calvin Coolidge in the United States. A man of few words went to worship one Sunday morning and came back, and I think it was the butler in the White House that asked him, how was worship this morning? What was the sermon about? And President Coolidge looked at him and said, it was about sin. And the butler said, well, what did the preacher have to say about it? The president thought about that for a moment and said, he was against it. <laughs> the gospel 
And this is why Mark doesn't have this in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is not a clarification of what is a sin and what is not. The gospel is the announcement that one is coming who has been prophesied through Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and all the prophets who is coming to deal with all sin, the whole messy picture, once and for all, and the originator of sin in our hearts, who is the devil. The coming one has come to reckon with every single depravity of our hearts that Satan uses to turn us against God and one another. And so John the Baptist stands by the river and says simply, repent. Not of anything in specific, but the whole kit and caboodle, the whole nine yards, everything that has gone wrong in our hearts. The sad thing is there's only one group of people that John could not prepare. And it's a group we're going to hear about more next week when we go to John's gospel and John's account of John the Baptist. That one group was the ones who have nothing for which to repent. It was the group of people who felt like sin didn't impact them. It was somebody else's problem. It was always their fault. And for those people, they didn't need a baptism for the remission of sins because they had no sins that needed to be remitted. If sin is no big deal, then you can keep your mind exactly the way it is. Nothing needs to change at all. Now, John the Baptist and this message, repent, is still preparing hearts today. It's why we hear from John the Baptist every single Advent, the season of preparation. The season of getting ready, not just for Christmas, as Lyman pointed out so beautifully yesterday, but also for the fact that Jesus could come back tomorrow and Christmas may not happen this year. Or if it does, it'll be with Christ. John the Baptist still speaks to you and to me today every time we read these words and hear him say, change your mind, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. There is one coming who is greater than all. Even me, we are not worthy to untie his sandals. Now maybe, because pastors are told never to assume, there are people here who are part of that group that say, I really don't have anything to repent of. I'm actually pretty good. Luther had some beautiful words written for just that crowd. Luther said, what should people do if they're not aware of trouble and sin and don't feel they have any need of forgiveness? Well, Luther wrote, to such people, no better advice can be given than that in the first place they put their hand over their heart, check if they still have flesh and blood. And if so, they should believe what scripture says of it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Or if anyone sees the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Second Luther said they should look around. Put your hand off your heart and point out at everybody around you to see whether you're still in the world. Or are you in some Disney world where everything's perfect? Keep in mind in the world, Luther wrote, that there will be no lack of sin and trouble. As the scriptures say, in the world, you will have tribulation. 
And thirdly, they will certainly also have the devil about them, who with his lying and murdering day and night will let them have no peace within or without, (coughs) as the scriptures and Jesus himself picture him. It's Jesus that said the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Or I like the NIV translation. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Or Peter, who wrote, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. Now, if you're part of that other crowd, like most of Judea, apparently, who sees the effects of sin both around you, but more importantly, even within you. Mark also has words for you. This, what he has written, is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What you've heard here today is only the start. And over the course of the next 12 months, we will read the rest of Mark's gospel as Jesus, at every turn, takes on the devil, takes on sin and its effects, takes on illness, takes on all of the things that have gone wrong in the world and addresses them one by one and immediately moves on to the next project and immediately finds himself in Jerusalem and immediately finds himself nailed to a cross. Not in defeat, but in victory. But for today, we have the beginning. And so, John, while he only gets eight verses in Mark's gospel, because Mark moves immediately in verse 9 to Jesus' baptism, temptation, and preaching, nonetheless is the beginning. He is the good news at the river Jordan, calling you to repentance and to be baptized. And Mark will immediately get you as quickly as he can to the cross, because that is where the forgiveness of sins flows from, into that font, to that altar, every time we hear the word of God. You are called to repent, but more importantly, to believe the good news. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I invite you as God's people to rise as we join our hearts and voices together in prayer.